Okay, coming up, chat had a few weeks ago with Carolyn Barclay. Um, we talked about songwriting, copywriting, got into some mysticism about tarot and many other things. I um, This is a couple of weeks late. Apologies for that. I had to sort out the audio a little bit. Um, so you might notice, if you've got eagle ears, you might notice some jump cuts there, but that's just because some of the audio dropped out uh, in the recording. I've no idea why. Um, wasn't anything too important, so all the good stuff is still in there. So, um, yeah, Carolyn Barkley. Carolyn, how are you? And I'm not too bad, and yourself? Yeah, not too bad at all. Now, normally, when I, when I record these chats, quite often it's with people overseas and I have to, you know, muck about with time zones and everything, but uh, no such problems here because we're virtually neighbours, in fact. Because uh, I was going to say, I think you're just a few streets away, really. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we could have, I guess we could have, you know, done it live in a coffee shop or something like that. I haven't really got the portable technology to do that properly, uh, I don't think. No worries. <laughs> we'll have to meet up for a jam session sometime instead. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's it. Yeah, well, we're going to talk about music in, uh, in a minute. But yeah, but I could uh, I could bring along my bass or something and uh, accompany That'd be cool. Yeah. <laughs> so to, um, before, I guess what I mostly want to talk about is some of your writing, uh, which um, because I've kind of been following it. You, you publish most of your stuff on on LinkedIn, you know. And I was and when I was looking for topics to talk about, uh, you know, from things you, you'd written, uh, I thought actually what I'm going to do is use this opportunity to hustle you, because there's a <laughs> there's a book in there uh, somewhere, you know. Because um, I mean, my first book that I did was basically based around four or five sort of blog posts that I pieced together and then made it into a book you know but yours is almost written it's all there there's about 40 chapters oh, already yeah yeah started last year um someone I met on Twitter sort of said oh you should try out LinkedIn and I was like oh I hate LinkedIn like it's just like it felt to me like the grown-up were talking at the grown-up table and they just basically tell me to shut up but when I started um doing it I just said to myself well I've, I've learned so much over the last couple of years because I really threw myself and try to educate myself about copywriting and creativity and all these things. And um, what if I just try to make sense of all the things I've learned and consolidate it and I can just chuck that into a few articles? I, ne I never really thought anyone would read them. Um, yeah. And then I ended up doing a series, The Seven Habits of Copywriters, and that was when people started to actually read them and take notice and comment. And I was like, oh, this is kind of amazing. So, um, but I once heard Ryan Wallman was on a book club. I go to this Omaha um, ad uh, society sort of thing. They do a book club and he came along to the one when we did his book, Delusions of, Gran of Grandeur. And he actually said, someone had said to him, like, if you've got 13 decent blog posts, you got a book. And I have to, like, I have to confess, I sort of thought, hmm, well, I've got at least that many. <laughs> Yeah. So we'll see. <laughs> no, definitely. I mean, I think that's how Ryan's book came together as well. You know, it was kind of, you know, because he'd written all this stuff and he didn't really see it himself. And then it was Giles 
um, from uh, from GASP agency in England. Yeah. That sort of uh, press ganged in, uh, into doing it, and then they illustrated it. You know. Yeah. yeah thank uh, goodness you did. <laughs> yeah. Well, sometimes that's it. You need someone from outside to, uh, you know, to pressure you. You know. Actually, when yeah. I when I decided to put my first book out, I had the reverse where I got people saying to me, "Don't put that." In. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you can't see the label from inside the pickle jar, can you? That's, well, that's exactly. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, tell us, um, tell us a bit about, you know, how you got to where you are today, sort of thing, because, um, you know, because as we were saying before, so you didn't start out as a writer, did you? You were in sort of marketing and then sort of yeah. fell into that. Well, marketing was always my plan B and because I wanted to be a singer songwriter. And of course, what I didn't reckon on is that anyone who has a plan B when they plan to be a musician ends up ends up using that plan B. <laughs> you, you really can't give yourself that way out. Um, and I'm the kind of person, if I do something, I do it properly. So I didn't kind of half-ass the plan B thing. I really threw myself into my marketing and advertising degree. And where you put your effort, you know, where you water the grass, that's where it grows. And so I very much ended up... Um, you know, provision of having to earn a living act, you kind of, I put the music aside and ended up taking the marketing route and I actually ended up in a marketing analyst role in Avon, Australia, up in Sydney. And I was kind of heartbroken by the whole thing because that really, like if I was going to move into that space, I really wanted to be a copywriter in an advertising agency because that, that sounded really fun and really, um, I mean, it'd be hard work, of course, but it was, creative and, and all the right things but mm. kind of like driving in Sydney like once once you get on one of those roads with those uh concrete pylons on either side like you get stuck kind of driving on that road yeah. and I um I did kind of take on any opportunity like when I I, I moved back to Melbourne because I, I and I apologize to anyone from Sydney who's listening, but for me it was just somewhere you you survived it's not somewhere you live and I I was born in Melbourne so I I had this pull to come home and um and I sort of took different jobs in marketing and ended up more of a generalist but I would take on any writing projects that I could because that was kind of where there was a small opportunity to be you know mildly creative but mm. um at the same time like you don't get to be creative with a capital C like you've, you've still got to um bring that business sensibility to it yeah and, you know, we'll probably get to it later, but that was something that I reconnected with during um, lockdown was trying to reconnect with that creativity that went along with the songwriting. Yeah. So, so you said that you kind of, you kind of taught yourself copywriting. What sort of sources, you know, obviously, you know, writing songs, we'll talk about that in a minute. So you've got this yeah. sort of natural kind of aptitude or desire to write, but then... Yeah. How did you, what, what was your, what were your sort of go-to sources for kind of teaching yourself? Sure. I mean, um, I did take copywriting courses as part of my degree and I kind of saw them as an opportunity to inform my songwriting. So the things you learn there about one idea and, um, and all that sort of stuff, like, like I thought it was going to help me write songs, but in the end, writing the songs helped me write copy, which is kind of ironic, but, um, so beyond that kind of background and bringing my marketing sensibility to 
writing copy. So I understood copy had a job to do and it needed a call to action and um, all that sort of thing. But mm. beyond that, like the last three years, because I've, I've had my business for about three years now, I I just read everything, every, um, you know, and you've got to sort through things to find the right people to listen to. Yeah. So it'd be podcasts and it would be books and it would be like I, I hooked in with um, copy hackers stuff and um and I'm in I do I'm working my way through copy school which is their online um course and I, it's continuous improvement I mean you're never done learning how to do copywriting it's just yeah. you just what, never done things, one of the things I've noticed on on Twitter um now obviously it's Twitter you know I remember a guy there's a guy I know Alan Walk uh in in uh New York he's a TV analyst I heard he was over here once and he said he said uh, part of his talk I can't remember the rest of it I just remember this one line but he said you know remember what's going on on Twitter is largely representative of what's going on on Twitter uh, yeah. <laughs> yes not, you know, not the rest of the world but I have what I've noticed on Twitter there seems to be a little bit more sort of camaraderie and kind of support amongst the copywriter community yes. rather than yeah. the strategy community who just want to sort of you know, shoot each other down. Um, yeah, there's not a lot of arguments between copywriters. And in fact, um, yeah, absolutely huge sense of camaraderie. Um, people will swap jobs, you know, if they can't take on a, a, a client or something like that, they'll refer it to someone else. Like, it's just, it's kind of beautiful. Yeah, yeah I guess, I, I don't know. I don't know why that is, but I've noticed the same thing. Yeah. So one, one of the things, just uh on, on the copy thing, because one of your uh, little articles you wrote, and I thought it was quite interesting when you talked about your journey, I guess, from, or maybe not a journey, but just a change in your sort of mindset from, you know, writing sort of corporate copy or, you know, long copy for websites and things like that. And the label that was that is put on that is content. Oh, and, yeah. and you said like, that there was a moment where you, decided to stop being a content writer and mm -hmm. and, and and be a copywriter um, just for I mean yeah. just to give you an example you know that sort of um, the reason that tickled me was I, I remember so I worked for a while in an agency um, that, that called themselves a content marketing agency I never liked that label I said why can't we yeah. call itself brand publishing or something it sounded a bit more kind of <laughs> grown up you know and the, and the people there were content editors and I was like, why don't you just okay. say an editor? <laughs> yeah. Know, what else can you edit, you know? <laughs> yeah, so true. I mean, I, I look at all these words we have now for marketing, content marketing, email marketing, digital marketing, and, you know, someone who learned all this stuff quite a while ago, I sort of look at it and go, isn't it all just marketing? And with this focus on all the tactics and them acting as if their strategy, like we're just eddying around a plug hole of a drain, we're just going to go down. Like it's mm. just... You know, the content for me is just like, and I again apologize to anyone out there calls them a content themselves a content creator, but to me it's just insulting. And like, I only wouldn't own the the name copywriter because for me, a copywriter was someone that worked in an agency writing ads, and there was yeah. no no other way of looking at it. Um, but I quickly came to understand that by framing myself as a content creator both to myself, but certainly to clients, they really just view words as almost like, well, like stuffing. And you can stuff something with anything. Like you could 
pretty much just go blah, 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 blah. Like a lot of the time it felt like they just needed the words to push the images apart. Um, the design would already be done. Yeah. Especially, you know. especially online. So, you know, I yes. like to, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm a, a useless cook, but I do like looking at recipes and imagining what it might be like to make that thing. And then, yeah. but you know, you look up a recipe for something, you know, pizza dough, and you have to wade through about, you know, three uh -huh. pages of like the backstory to this pizza dough before you get the recipe. And I think, why do they do that? And it's, it's because right. it's for SEO purposes, right? Because yeah, because it has to, the article has to be significantly different from all the other pizza, you know, so it's almost like the function has taken over the form. Yes, that's yeah. a brilliant way of looking at it, actually. Yeah. 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 But, um, right, I guess to, right, this, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna do this now before we get into the, the meat of the conversation. Because every time I interview people, when we do this thing with, with picking music, I wait yeah. until about 40 minutes in and then forget that we're gonna, we're gonna, music but because music's kind of going to be a little theme that goes mm -hmm. through the thing so so you know the thing it's like desert island discs right so you're gonna you're gonna give us your first first tune and give us a little story about okay. uh about its uh relevance so i think number one you picked is paul simon isn't it? yes um i picked boy in the bubble um and in a lot of ways this song has a very big job to do because it's got to stand in for like every song that paul simon wrote yeah. um i really admire his lyricism he like he doesn't shy away from using those really ugly words i can't think of anyone who could get away with you know the kinds of phrases he puts into things um he, he's just masterful and and he really like one thing that's really important to me as a writer is writing fearlessly and i think he he really does that yeah. Now, Pick Boy in the Bubble, partly because I'm absolutely convinced that he comes from the future because you read the lyrics to that um, song and it's just so relevant. It's as relevant today as it probably was when he wrote it. Um, so, yeah, we, and that, um, whole, that whole album, you know, is fantastic. It's kind of, you know, because I think at the time, because he used a lot of South African musicians and everything, there's a little bit of controversy because it was... Yes. It's at the yeah. sort of tail end of apartheid and, uh, and things. You know, obviously, you know, obviously his motive was to draw attention uh, to that. Yeah. Partly and to draw attention to that situation, wasn't it? Yeah. And Grace, Graceland was one of the few albums we had in the car because my parents didn't really play um, radio in the car. And around town, my mum, she was a folk singer in this um melbourne in the 70s and she just always sings. So, yeah. like, I didn't, I wasn't really up to date with like, the latest hits or anything like that and graceland was like the one we would put on on long road trips so the boy in the bubble got played a lot obviously yeah. Yeah. and um for me like there are a lot of predictions in there about our relation well it's also it's about our relationship with technology so i think the upshot of it all is that he feels it does more harm but more good than harm on balance because like there's these lines like the boy in the bubble and the baby with the baboon heart like these are the things technology can achieve. Mm -hmm. um, but he also talks about things like the way the camera follows us in slow-mo and the way we look to us all. And the way we look to us all, for example, makes me think of Twitter because we're all constantly referencing each other. We're looking at what, uh, what does this person think? But as opposed to that, what do I think? And we're constantly editing and refining our opinions mm -hmm. 
against the backdrop of everyone else's. But it kind of learnt, leads to this homogenization of opinion, which is interesting, yeah. um, well, but a, kind a, of problematic. A bubble, a bubble in fact. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Yeah. And um, things like staccato signals of constant information and a loose affiliation, affiliation of millionaires and billionaires. I mean, if that's not about um, tech giants and some yeah. the control of information, I, I don't know what is. So, yeah, he has to come from the people. Yeah. Well, that's it. So, you know, I mean, Paul Simon, you know, probably doesn't, you know, as, as an innovator, probably doesn't get the credit. You know, that, that no. Maybe, maybe okay, right, I'm going to play the tune. I guess a little segue from that into talking about tech and and the benefits rather than the obviously there's a lot of lot of downside to social media you know mm. it makes us very competitive uh, yeah well more competitive uh, than we ordinarily are but but you've um you know you talked about 2020 as being a sort of uh, you know kind of breakthrough year you you know where you yeah you know you sort of you know met loads of people like minds and all that but you talk about as uh as running at the scary thing so um yeah um early in 2020 before everything hit i i had kind of made a quiet decision to myself that i was going to stop playing it so safe and if something came up that was going to scare me i was going to run at it head on um my dad fought in the war in Vietnam. And he always told us that if someone's shooting at you, what you should absolutely do is run towards them in a zigzag pattern because they, it gets harder and harder for them to actually 
um, get you. So I, I guess that was in my mind when I when I conceptualized that idea. But um, so I lost most of my clients in the first couple of weeks of, of COVID, as a lot of people did. Tell and, me about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and and then I had to homeschool because I've got I've got four kids, and at the time they were four kids, nine and under, and they all needed so much support um, with that learning at home that it kind of ended up being a blessing in disguise. Like I really didn't have a lot of time to work on um, client work, but as a way of kind of keeping my hand in it and and this continuous learning, my commitment to that, that's part, partly why I started posting on LinkedIn. And I also got heavy into um, having these conversations on Twitter about all kinds of things with all kinds of people. And again, like it was, it was creative people as well. So there were, there were writers, there were artists, there were people from advertising as opposed to like no shade for like marketing people, but the emphasis on, um, you know, the, the business acumen side of things is, mm. is absolutely useful as a copywriter, but I'd really lost touch with um, my creativity. So mm. and I, I put music aside when I moved into marketing because it was kind of almost too painful to to do anything with that I was so disappointed that that hadn't worked out and I started playing again and I started yeah. tinkering around the piano and I'd pick up my guitar most days and I'd sing and you know I just got really got back in touch with my 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 roots and and that was a beautiful thing to do. Yeah. Do, do you think that um you know having multiple creative activities that you can uh, you can lean on you know that helps do you think that helps with the business part of creativity you know, people, oh, i've got this you know i've got this stuff to write but but by playing music or something you can um that sort of unlocks those little sort of creative muscles in the brain or whatever um, oh yeah. yeah yeah definitely i mean one of my biggest beliefs about creativity and you know i'm not the only person to think or say this um but, you know, creativity is about making connections between existing things. Mm. Um, when you come at writing something, you bring everything you know, everything you've ever experienced, everything you've ever read. You have to bring all of that to the table so that you can make those connections mm. and find things that your audience is going to actually understand. And in that way, like you can explain almost anything. I mean, I've, I've had to, I mean, I have to explain things on a daily basis to my kids. That are really complicated things especially last year with um everything that was going on and yeah. you know even that helps me write because I, i'm in the practice of and, you know not to dumb things down but if you can explain something to a seven-year-old you can probably explain it to anybody yeah. um i remember i mean just talk, talking about kids you know with my boy that last year one of the difficult things was you know she's asking me questions you know what why are we doing this lockdown what's this what's that and i'm having to say I, I don't really know. Like this is as new. To yeah. Is it? Is it? Is and it, they lost everything so fast. Like it was like they were at school on a Wednesday, and by a Friday we were in full lockdown or something like that. And yeah. you know, it was really hard for them. And I think I don't think there was a huge acknowledgement of um, like we would all talk about how hard it was for us. But like my kids are on the autism spectrum, and they lost like all of their routines and everything they knew and all their touch points throughout a day. Yeah. They were just gone. Yeah. You know, it just made it really, really hard on them. Yeah, um, it's a, it's a, yeah. a lost, a lost year, really for, for kids. Yeah, it was. It was. Yeah. yeah, it's kind of sad in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, but they've got a renewed enthusiasm for school, so that's good. <laughs> yeah. yeah, my boy's away on camp this week, so uh, 
Oh. I just had like two weeks of lessons and now, now I've got to wait. Camp Off a bit. they go. Yeah. Well, school's <laughs> a bit like that. They encourage a lot of um, uh, other activities alongside the academic, you know, which is quite good. Yeah. Yeah, especially. For which the... goes back to what you were saying. Like, um, I know, for example, I've looked into. The, the, the effect on the brain that say playing the piano has and because you've got that cross body um action mm. uh it actually changes the way your brain operates so like absolutely it affects how you run a business or how you under, make you know understand things because actually changes your whole brain's setup so yeah definitely yeah. bringing all those different avenues of creativity or activity or experience like it can't hurt can it yeah i suppose you know and, 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 you know, like you said before, you know, creativity is about making connections, you know, yeah. uh, amongst things that maybe on first look don't seem to be connected. You know? And I guess the more, yeah. the more exp different experiences that you can have, then you make, then that makes new connections, you know, new sort of wiring, and then that's there and it can be drawn upon when, uh, when you think about something else. Yeah. One of the things I wrote was um, my biggest copywriting tip would be actually be to do literally anything else, mm. like because of what you just say, like you really got to fill your time with as much um, experience and understanding, especially things like human behaviour. Like the best thing you can do is just be out in the world watching watching people and seeing why they make the decisions they make and their reactions to things and whatnot. I mean, watching people react to COVID was was just fascinating. I yeah. mean, it was a horrible time, but but just the various ways people coped or didn't cope, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I was reading the other day, and apparently we actually have this um this phenomenon called uh, behavioral, I think it's called behavioral immunity. I, I wrote about it a little bit the other day, but um and it and it it referenced the fact that in order to cope with something like a pandemic, we kind of all, uh, we, we gravitate towards the average or the, or the conventional because that's actually, biologically speaking, that's going to save us from, so for example, they tell us to wash our hands. If we all do that, then that's, we know that's going to help us. But you notice that in, say, the Super Bowl ads, for example, then you see this homogenization of um, the creative that came out of that because everyone seemed to just gravitate towards like the celebrity thing or whatnot and you sort of wonder is that related like yeah. it's, i know. mean definitely you know in sort of uh you know from a sort of evolutionary standpoint um th this is the kind of a weird sort of paradox of of uh of kind of covid and everything because because naturally we're kind of wired to seek safety in numbers when, mm. when perceive threats which of course during COVID, which was possibly the worst thing to do. You know? so, <laughs> yeah. So, so not only have we got the sort of, you know, the kind of isolation and, and sort of feelings that go along with that, but we've got 2 million years of, of evolution pulling us towards being with other people, you know? Um, That's it. That's it. Yeah. And we all crave connection. And that was what drove me to Twitter, really. It's because I just, like, I'm living in a house with, six people you'd think I wasn't you know exactly lonely but at the same time I just 
I mean, I'm slightly oppositional. So maybe the second somebody told me to stay inside, I was like, you know, doing everything I wanted to get out, even though I'm usually a homebody. But yeah. I just knew that feeling of connecting with the outside world. And yeah. that's what that gave me. Uh, definitely. I was the same as you. You know, On the one hand, you're sort of pulled towards Twitter and stuff like that for just some sort of connection and conversation. But on the other hand, you're sort of pulled away from it because of just the, the amount of, you know, it's when you depend on it, that's when you realise the amount of rubbish that, that gets spoken yeah. about you know, at the same time. Yeah, right? that's it. Yeah. So song, song actually, let's um, let's play another tune before we talk about the songwriting uh, stuff. Okay. So um, your next selection, just I've, I've lost my notes and that's really tell me which one. It's <laughs> okay. Oh, here we go. Jo jo Joni Mitchell, that's what we're going to play. That's it. Yeah. So both sides now, um, my first memory of, I, I should preface this by saying Joni Mitchell has probably taught me the most about writing of all the people I'll talk about today. And I did pick songs that were of people that have influenced my writing um, just because she's really just an, she's an artist and, and her music, just one of the ways that she expresses that. Um, but this is also my gateway song for Joni, if you like. I remember my my mother was singing it and I, I was very little and I don't remember where we were, but I remember thinking like, you know, the song's about clouds. And I, I remember thinking, I can't see any because we were driving through a forest and it was just this really, um, you know, it was just green everywhere you looked. But um, so that was kind of my earliest memory of Joni. And I really didn't have her on LP or on CD later until I was in my twenties and I was kind of reconnected with her in this, sort of strange way then and I she sort of arrived my life my life when I needed her because I was trying to become a better songwriter yeah. and um she became I do have this habit of getting these little obsessions and she became a little obsession of mine so I read everything I could about her and I watched documentaries and I own all of her albums even the ones I don't like and all that sort of stuff um but she doesn't shy away from revealing herself so for yeah. example on blue i think i can't remember the name of that said it to her but he's like you know Joni, keep something for yourself because she really <laughs> she laid it all out like there was that even that song little green and you know that's about the child she gave up for adoption and you know she just really put it all out there but as a result like that album is like so unbelievably special and yeah. it's probably the album most people know the most and have connected yeah. with the most I, I got to tell you, when I when I was a boy, you know, I was maybe about 13, 14. So I mean, I was uh, I was like a punk rocker, right? <laughs> but secretly, secretly, and in, in the back of my record collection, I, I had three albums, which was No Secrets by Carly Simon, the oh. Julie Mitchell, the blue one, and then Tapestry by Carol King. <gasps> I love Carol um, King. And, and I would secretly listen to those because as well as being 14 year old punk rocker, I was also a 14 year old boy who was starting to get interested in girls. And that yeah. was and that was my little insight into girls' minds, you know, because. Yes, for because, sure. Because the songwriting was kind of different from the, the men songwriters that I liked. And I, I, I look at this song and one of the things that struck me about it was that it's kind of almost like a mini campaign. Like the song itself is about um, looking at things from all angles and she kind of starts really specific with clouds and then she moves to love and then she moves to life. But it's it's almost like it's like a series of little ads or something. Like she's yeah. sort of 
yeah, it's like that one big idea, but she's able to look at it several different ways. So that kind of struck me as well. Rose and flows of angel hair And ice cream castles in the air And feather canyons everywhere Looked at clouds that way But now they only block the sun They rain and they snow on everyone So many things I would have done But clouds got in my way Dizzy dancing way that you feel As every fairy tale comes through I've looked at love that way But now it's just another show And you leave them laughing when you go And if you can, don't let them know Don't give yourself away I've looked at love from both sides now From give and take Still somehow it's love's illusions that I recall I really don't know love I really don't know love at all said about that. I said, well, well I'm finding that because you, you started playing piano, you said, when you were about four. That's, I did, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, um, were you sort of were you sort of pushed into that, or were were you sort of at age four saying, "Get me a piano"? God, no, I wasn't pushed into anything as a child. Like, good yeah. luck with that. But um, no, I I I was fascinated with the piano. So, I learned to crawl quite early, and my mother once found me actually having climbed onto the piano before I could even walk. Like, like I was just, and I was always drawn to it, and. I think I, I don't know there was just like this pull towards this thing and and I would always tinker on it and I could even before I took lessons I could always work out like songs just by ear um so I ended up actually taking Suzuki um piano lessons as a starting point because that they teach very much by ear at first and and I actually couldn't even read music until I was close to 12 yeah. and I had to um 
pretend like for exams and such I actually had to pretend that I could read the music because it was kind of required I didn't like you to play things by ear so um yeah that was was I remember remember reading the thing Paul McCartney said because he um he uh wrote uh, well towards the end of the Beatles started writing mostly on piano they said uh-huh. that his whole career, uh, to this day, he still never learned to read music. And he, yeah. would, and he would force himself to play other instruments that he didn't know very well. Because, uh, you know, once he got the hang of the guitar, it kind of became too technical. So he moved to piano. Fascinating. You know, to, to get that sort of primitive kind of, uh, you know, lack of theory kind of thing and just bash, bash things out. You know? yeah. yeah. And it was funny because, like, when I, I tried once to learn, because I played the clarinet as well, mm. and I tried to go from class, and, and I was very much by that stage a notes on a page musician, and I tried to make this transition to jazz, but it was almost like I'd ruined that ability to play by ear. Mm. So my, my I had this very highfalutin jazz professor type person who was trying to teach me jazz, and I'd watch him play, and I learned all of the scales and all this sort of stuff, and then he'd sort of, count me in and I just freeze up like I just couldn't I just couldn't make it happen and I, I guess I was slightly worried about that with copywriting like I I, I had this natural understanding of, of of rhythm and the way something should flow and lots of stuff and and someone actually said to me once like you might not want to sort of tinker too much learning te- like technical copy stuff because it might actually ruin your ability to just have that natural whatever it is you've got naturally with the copyright. I was like, I've got to kind of keep that in mind because I just had yeah. so burned by the experience I had with music. But yeah, yeah I, as I said, you know, you've got to keep learning. Well, one of the things you said about the, the sort of what's similar with copywriting and songwriting is um, you need to, to learn to write fearlessly. Yeah. So what is that, how, how would you, Sort of, um, what does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> um, I kind of think I know. What, I think I know what it means, but I'm interested to see what, what you think. Yeah. Well, I mean, I on the page is probably the only place in my life where I am fearless. It's I'm a reasonably insular, um, introverted person, but there's just something about like when I talk to people, I have this habit of forming conversations where we end up talking about really um, personal. <laughs> deep things and I don't know how that happens but invariably when I stop having a conversation with somebody they'll say I never talk to people like this and I'll be I'd be lying if I wasn't if I said I wasn't kind of proud of that but um I think that comes out in my copywriting like I just I'm not afraid to talk about anything and I'm not afraid to go there with things and I think that's partly in the topic and the idea but like with Joni and Paul Simon, like they all use quite ugly language sometimes in their, their lyrics. And, and it makes you pay attention. Like you cannot not listen to the lyrics in a Paul Simon song. Yeah. Whereas, you know, plenty of songs like how many people do you talk to about music, which is you know, horribly disappointing, but you'll say, oh, what music do you like? And they'll say, oh, I don't know, you know, whatever's on or something yeah. I can dance to. or something. Yeah. And as a person who's into words, like, it's just that, what do you mean? Like, how are you uh, not listening to the yeah, Totally. I mean, I I make I make very quick snap judgments about people. If you know, uh-huh. yeah. Well, first of all, if they say they don't like music, then I just think, well, you don't like anything. 
That's but, very but, sauce, isn't it? <laughs> but also, this is quite a sort of, uh, you know, it's funny in this kind of age of sort of post-modernity, you know, one, one of the sort of, without getting too philosophical, but one, one of the sort of components of post-modernity is this, is the, the sort of lack of distinction now between what is high culture and what is low culture. Yeah. Uh, things sort of blended in, you know, but I guess, you know, I'm kind of old fashioned modernist in that respect. And I say there is a big distinction, you know, there's, there's yeah, for sure. There's, there's stuff that is that, you know, there's only two types of music, really. There's good music and bad music. You know, yeah. you know. I mean, I'm funny in a way. I grew up in a household where they were just as likely to be playing an opera aria as they were John Farnham's greatest hits. So it's, yeah. you know, we, as, as far as my taste goes, like if someone said to you, to me, what's your favorite style of music? Like I couldn't answer that question. I, I, I liked the Backstreet Boys when they were, you know, <laughs> out when I was 13. Yeah. Um, and I'm not ashamed to say it. Like, I, I like, I still like Coldplay at me. Yeah. I don't care. Like, I, I just, there are things yeah. that I like and I just like the song. And maybe it's because of the idea in it or maybe it's a line I like or maybe it's um, a little riff or something like that that just really gets to me. But that's all I require of it. I don't need it to be, I mean, I won't lie, choosing the songs was difficult and I had to stop myself thinking, like, stop virtue signaling, like, stop trying to fight. Like, people are going to judge you by what you choose regardless, but I've chosen songs for a particular reason and I yeah. actually had to actively stop myself going, you know, this is who you are. But that's what we do with music. Yeah. Like, it's so identity-bound. Yeah. No, that's it. Yeah, because you, you think, all right, I'm going to pick a Paul Simon tune and you think... I can't pick that one. It's too popular. Yeah, I, I need to pick right. something off of a sort of an obscure B side. What's or the cool one? Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. But I, I, I have to just accept I'm not cool. Like yes, whatever. Well, it's not, you know that's the thing. It's not really for us to decide. You know, it's what it's what other people. Yeah, yeah it's like branding. Yeah, think about Coldplay as well. I was talking to I was talking to someone the other, the other week, I can't remember what it was about, but I remember the story, it was this guy Dave Hearn that I used to work with, and he, uh, as a kind of pep talk thing, he used to tell us this story about uh, Noel Gallagher from Oasis, you know, and he was talking oh, about yeah. songwriting. I think this comes back to fearlessness, maybe, in a way. Yeah. But Noel Gallagher used to say, he said he doesn't, he said the songs write themselves through him. And he said, but yeah. it's, a bit, it's a bit like going fishing. He said, you've got to go to the river and, you know, and, and you know, cast a line and try and catch a song. He said, if you stop going to the river, then the, the songs don't come. Uh, and he talked yeah. about the Coldplay song Yellow. And he said he was really annoyed when they did that because he said that was an Oasis song. It was just he didn't, yeah. go, to, he didn't go to the river that day and catch it. And Chris Martin caught it instead, you know. <laughs> I love that idea. And in fact, I was reading a book by Liz Gilbert and about oh, big magic, I think it's called, about creativity. And she actually says that, like, ideas visit people. And if you don't, um, if you don't do anything with them, they'll get bored with you yeah. and they'll go find someone else to bring them yeah. into the world. And I, I, quite, I quite like that idea. Ideas for things or bits of writing yeah. that got lost over the years just because I didn't write them down at the time. Oh my gosh, yes. I, I always think, because I have a really, like I have a crazy good memory mm. and even I forget things and I'm always really like mad when I don't actually take the trouble to write them down because I think, oh no, I'll remember that. And I never do. And it's always that really good stuff mm. that just flies right out of your ear. So, uh, yeah, 
the, the other thing that I, the, I, that I hadn't heard of this idea, but you you referenced this um, uh, uh, Pat Pattinson, right, who, who wrote, wrote a book. And you, and you talk about um, there was an idea in there, which is um, how to create a sort of a metaphor around the thing. Mm-hmm. And, and you talked about, you know, instead of saying, you know, in the key of B minor or something, it's in the key of a word. So it's yeah. a, the example in your article, which is interesting, was uh, was you know playing something in the key of moon. Yeah. And then all the different associations you can create around that, just around that one word. Absolutely. And he, one of the things he really bangs on about a lot in his his advice about how to craft um, metaphors and analogies and things is to keep them really sense bound. Because if you do that, people are bringing their own, it's like looking at a painting, like I can look at the same object as you can, but you're bringing everything you've ever experienced, looked at, read, everything, felt, you know, the whole works, you're bringing that to um, your interpretation of that thing. So really, I've been noodling around this idea, but you know, where does copy happen? Like, yes, it's on the page, but it also happens in the head of the reader. So when I write a word for example say home which is one of my favorite words um i think home and i think roast lamb with made with rosemary from just outside the kitchen door and um you know all these happy associations but someone else might read the word home and bring a whole different perspective to it so you've got to be careful like in a way the words that you select and the kinds of associations people might have but when you write in the key of something um like I love that idea. I just thought that was <laughs> that really spoke to me. Yeah, um, no, me yeah too, so... I kind of grabbed all of it because you know one of the things you know from a sort of you know when you're doing sort of brand strategy stuff. So one of the little tools <clears throat> uh, I tend to use is you know is thinking about uh, what they call category entry points. You know, so where, when, why, uh-huh. you know, with whom, with what, you know, around. Uh, you know, something that a, a product or service can be, you know, associated with. And sometimes, you know, and I see other strategists, they create great long lists of, you know, thousands of potential CEPs. But sometimes you think, actually, it's more around a bit like this, you know, this idea of the key of moon. It's it's pick one. But, mm. then, but then there are so many associations around that one category entry point. You know, so you could. Uh, yeah, it's so true. Yeah, a, a client I've been working with recently. You know, they do. Um, uh, it's a, a D to C like meal delivery thing, uh-huh. you know, and it's sort of, uh, but it's kind of premium sort of uh, uh, restaurant quality meals, you know, delivered kind of thing. We're trying to do a sort of CEP map for that, and I just, you know, I said actually it's just a dinner, right? Yeah. That's that's the one. Yeah. But then there are so many. There are so many little associations with dinner that you can that you can make. You know, you can create a whole world of CEPs around your one. Absolutely. So I don't I don't know if that's technically correct. That's a great example. Yeah. yeah. But it seemed cool. to seemed to make sense. Yeah. yeah. Well, we all eat dinner, don't we? <laughs> well, exactly. hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> okay, let's have let's have another tune so this is a very very obscure song that nobody's ever going to have heard of right? 
I'm, I'm joking, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, mm, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Hallelujah by Jeff Buckley. And I, you know, I say by Jeff Buckley. Obviously, it's a Leonard Cohen song, so it's kind of a two-four deal there. Leonard Cohen's another um, lyricist. And someone my mother sang a lot of his songs, so I was quite familiar with um, with his work. But I feel like, in a way, it's Jeff Buckley's song. Like, I personally don't care for the Lennon Cohen version. It's a little bit dirgy and, you know, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And it's it's one of those, it's, it's rare that, you know, where there's like a cover is better than the original. That doesn't happen very often. But yeah. Absolutely. And I wanted to, I actually want to include a cover song because these are really, like cover songs are really important to me um, because it's kind of what we do in copywriting or advertising or anything like that. Like we, we, we bring freshness to older things or that sort of stuff. Um, and I had to choose between this song and the Milk Carton Kids version of Pink Floyd's Wish You Were Here because that's right. extraordinary. Um, I'll yeah, I'll, I'll send it to you. It's really, really good. Um, but I do think this is one of the best cover songs ever um, because everyone else who covers it, they sing it too prettily. Right. It's not a pretty song. It's about sexual obsession. Like people have this played at their weddings. Like, <laughs> have you even listened to the lyrics? Um, and that reminds me of the Queen of the Night aria from Mozart's Magic Flute because when people sing that song, like a lot of the sopranos will sing it really, really prettily, but the woman's meant to be a psycho. Like she's yeah. laughing hysterically about taking revenge and then they're singing it, you know, all, all cute and stuff. And I feel the same way about this version of Hallelujah. Like he really... Right from the, the get-go, they've actually captured him breathing at the beginning of the track. Like, it's just this intake of breath, which, you know, considering he he died, like, it's just kind of haunting. Yeah. And and then at the same time, like, um, this this song became a real albatross around his neck. Like, he would he would play, play gigs and he'd be playing all his own original songs and everyone just wanted to hear him sing Alleluia. Because it was just, it really connected with people. Mm. But I do think Jeff Buckley was underrated as a as a songwriter. I mean, I love the way he described himself in his press bio. He and I, I don't hope you don't mind. I'm going to read this out. But so he said, "I'm the warped love child of Nina Simone and all four members of Led Zeppelin, with the fertilized egg transplanted transplanted into the womb of Edith Piaf, out of which." He is born and left on the street to be tortured by the bad brains. <laughs> I, like, oh. I love that. Yeah. Well, you know, some... that, you know, recombinations, you know, that's the sort of, you know, essence of, uh, of creativity. Yeah, and you can hear all of that if you yeah. really listen to all of his music. It's all in there. Um, yeah. his, his ability to turn a line, like one of my, one of the ones that just kills me is in Love You Should Have Come Over, and he has a line, a kingdom for a kiss upon her shoulder, which I'm just like, oh, like that's just that's just beautiful, yeah. <laughs> and it always makes me cry. But yeah. yeah, so I love I love his music, but I think unfortunately for him, this is the song he'll always be yeah. remembered for. Yeah, Jeff Buckley's one because around about probably there was a period I think maybe when I was about forty-five or something, and uh, and and. Records that I really liked, like like this one, and a lot of Neil Young stuff. And there was there was a moment where I thought I actually can't listen to this anymore because yeah, um, it was just too raw. 
you know, and, yeah. and it's kind of, you know, I could listen to it at a distance when I was younger because because mm -hmm. it seemed, you know, from somewhere else. But then the closer, I, you know, the, the, as you get older, I don't know, it just seemed to seem to come. I get that completely. Yeah. yeah. And I think people like that love music and you're probably the same. Like I think we use music differently from maybe yeah. majority of people do like. I remember, and you know, again, don't at me, but I, I'm quite a John Mayer fan, and um, I remember watching a, a perform of his once, and he was giving an interview afterwards, and he said, watching people sing along to his music is interesting because it's like it's like they want to try the lyrics on and see what it's like to be the person that gets to say them, and I do think I do that sometimes. Like there'll be lines and songs that I sing along with because it just expresses something I didn't have the words for, or yeah. It's just the point of view I want to try on. But like you say, like there are some that are so associated with certain points in my life or as I, again, like as you were saying, as you get older, you actually bring an understanding to it. Mm. And then you're like, oh, I can't, I can't do this anymore. Where's that Backstreet Boys CD? Oh, fine. I never had their CD, to be <laughs> fair. I would just, I was one of those kids that used to hang out with my, um, with my record record player in my room and like tape make mixtapes yeah, <laughs> yeah. um, and that was a brief and very you know shameful moment in my my station <laughs> strong but you needed proof you saw her bathing on the roof her beauty in the moonlight overthrew you she tied you to a kitchen chair she broke your throat and she cut your hair and from your lips she drew Alone before I knew you. 
I've seen your flag on the marble arch And love is not a victory march It's a call and it's a broken I mean, just a, but before we just get lost down some usual sort of hole and send everyone else in the audience to sleep. But, <laughs> um, but I guess this is, you know, talking about about that, how, you know, sometimes you either grow into or can grow out of songs or, or particular artists, you know, for, for whatever reason. As a writer, um, you know, there's a, you know, there's a sort of... Uh, an idea going around nowadays that uh, about lived experience. Right? This kind of, yeah. uh, I kind of find it slightly annoying that that you can only write. You know, the idea is that you can only write or create from your own lived experience, and you can't step into someone. You know, particularly if they're from a different cultural background or even gender or whatever. But I sort of sure. disagree with that. I think you know, we you know, as humans, you know, we I mean, we have inbuilt abilities to sort of you know put ourselves yeah. into the minds of other people or to be able to empathize uh, uh, or whatever so you know but as you you know and you'll have uh, many different writing assignments where you have to you know you you have to write from a point of view that's not your own experience but how, yeah. so how, how do you attack that um I mean, first of all, well, I'm, I'm assuming you disagree with, with the fact that you can't write from another point of view. Oh, completely. I mean, one of my favourite childhood authors was John Marsden, who any Australian kid's going to know, who wrote things like Tomorrow When the War Began. But, I mean, he was a school teacher, so he certainly spent a lot of time around children of both genders, but he could write, he could put himself in the mind of a, of a young girl yeah. without any trouble whatsoever. And I think if... <laughs> What it really requires is a, is a really keen sense of empathy, um, which I know I have. I'm I'm an intensely sensitive person, and you know I know people say if you could describe yourself as an empath, empath, you probably aren't. But I I genuinely am. I'm one of those people that absorbs other people's energy. I just have an ability to use my imagination to think about you know using whatever data points I know about a person to try and predict how they might behave or what, how they might react. And I mean. I, I, I'm quite famous for saying in my family, I love disaster movies and they're cheesy, like things like 2012 or Armageddon or any of that stuff. But what I love about them is that they put humans in a specific situation that's designed to put pressure on them. And then it looks at how different people react. And I mean, that's a perfect example, right? Like films, like they write all kinds of characters. Yeah. And it's usually by a single, but, but they write the words and the psyche of of various genders, various cultures. Yeah, it's it's pardon my French, but it's horseshit to say yeah. that you know somebody can't write about something they haven't lived themselves. I mean, yeah. science fiction proves that wrong all the time. Right, exactly. Yeah, and even though you know, I mean, most um, things, you know, the the germ of the of the story is something that you know that they've seen or observed in their own life that usually involves other characters you know so you know yeah. you're basically 
you're writing in what other people have done. So you've made sense of their thinking or action from being able to explain this very well, you know, but you can sort of say, well, No, I get what you're saying. You can put yourself sure. in there and say, How would I react in, in that situation? But this person's personality is made up slightly differently, so they would react X way, you know? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess that's partly what's problematic about the obsession with youth in the industry is that, like, I remember reading once about Spanish dancers, like, people who do Spanish dancing insist you can't really dance it properly until you're at least 35. You have to have loved someone you have to have um lost someone all that sort of stuff i do think there is something to be said i mean it, you take joni mitchell for example she was 23 when she wrote both sides now but by that point in her life she'd nearly died of polio she'd been married and divorced she'd given a child up for adoption she'd started a career as a you know rather famous musician i mean hello like <laughs> she's she lived a fair bit of that stuff but she She's one of those people that really did have that ability to mm. put herself in various people's shoes. So there is a combination of factors. I think I think it would be hard for someone who's, I don't know, in their early 20s to really, they're coming off that back of being like that super selfish, self-centred teen yeah. kind of mentality. Yeah. Um, might be hard for people that age to yeah. kind of put themselves. I mean, that, yeah. that said, like, it's not impossible. It's yeah. just... I guess, then, you know, so people listening to this will say, hang on a minute, you just, you just dissed. I know. But it's, yeah. but I guess it's not about personal lived experience. Well, it is, but it's about just having a bigger data set of, yes. of, of stuff to draw upon. Because yes. You know, I mean, if you're a super curious young person, then yeah. you're better off than someone who's mm-hmm. listening to the Backstreet Boys. Yeah. okay that's a good little segue into uh your forthcoming book that i'm going to force you to write which is, <laughs> which is going to be called the seven habits of uh extremely successful copywriters right and uh, and so habit number one that that you point out is cultivate curiosity so i mean we've mm-hmm. always just sort of talked about that just now but um you know I yeah think, you know, that's definitely number one. You know, if you want to be, you know, the old catchphrase, if you want to be interesting, then you have to be interested. Um, yes. And that first came about because I was watching a bunch of um, copywriters on LinkedIn. They were whinging about, like, how boring their assignments were. And I'd just made that journey, like, a couple of years before. And I, I really came to understand if I was being a whiny brat about, something I was writing about, it really was like a, and I end up calling it my brat signal that I really didn't understand what I was writing about. I mean, I've, one of my major clients now is is writing articles about earth moving equipment. And I get like ridiculously excited about earth moving yeah. equipment now because I just know so much about it. Like they use drones now. Yeah. <laughs> like it's, it's exciting. It's a really yeah. great, exciting industry. And they really know their clients. And therefore you're able to get, so much more insight and information into how to how to relate to those people so you know if you don't if you're not excited about what you're writing about then do more research basically be more curious about it absolutely Um, now point number two is is sweat equity yeah that actually sounds like a good title for the book yeah yeah uh, (laughs) I, i think i lifted that from a friend of mine who's he couldn't remember where he heard it. So it's one of those sort of things that's like, yeah, it's sort of come down to me via who knows who. But um, 
and that sort of splits into two different um, categories in a way because, I mean, I'm a, even with the experience I've got, I'm a reasonably new copywriter um, and I have to put in sweat equity just to write a thing. So you've got to write, you know, 20, 30 headlines to get one decent mm. one, for example. But then there's this other aspect of, you know, the sweat equity over time. Like when you've put decades into learning something, you can do it really quickly. Mm. And that's where that adage, um, you owe me for the years and not the minutes, like in terms of when you charge for something. Like if, if you're hiring someone who's got 20, 30, 40 years writing and they can come up with a headline after 10 headlines, they shouldn't be penalised for that. And in, mm. I think I had a Venn diagram in that um, post where it's actually from project management, but it has um, cheap, fast and good and where they overlap. And, you know, you can have cheap and good, which is slow. And (laughs) (laughs) you can have two flavours and then you're done. Like you cannot have cheap, fast and good. It's, you know, that's not going to happen or it shouldn't happen anyway. So it's a bit bit like the, you know, bigger data sets that we're talking about earlier, you know, so the more experience you have, then just you have that, just that bigger pool of, of stuff. Yes. Uh, uh. I, I work with a creative partner, um, David Moore, who's a, an ad man over in um, Omaha, Nebraska. And watching him come up with ideas, it's like they just go off like fireworks and I can't write them down quick enough. Like it's just mm. his ability to just go there really, really quickly. Mm. And I'm just thinking, oh, my God, will I ever be able to do that? Like it's just... Sometimes quantity begets quality, you know. It's uh, yeah, absolutely. I used that in 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 the first book I wrote. There's a chapter about Elvis Presley, which I I I used that. Like Elvis has made more great records than just about anybody else, but he's also made Mm -hmm. more terrible records than just about anybody else. You know, but it was kind of that was a, (laughs) was a, a necessary part of the process. You know, just to like crank stuff out and then almost like yeah. natural selection will decide you know what uh... and i think that's hard if you're someone like i'm not i'm not good at failing or i haven't traditionally been good at failing um and i think this has been a really good year for me because i've spent time around more advertising people who you know like david's constantly saying to me like this is just how brainstorming works like you've mm. got to be prepared to say the stupid thing you've got to be mm. prepared to put out an idea and have it be a terrible idea because like you know, sometimes those scapegoats of bad ideas can turn out to be kind of brilliant when they grow up. So you've mm. kind of got to have that ability to just put things out there. And then, like you say, like pick the good the good stuff. It's about editing. And, 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 and the sort of the flip side of that is sometimes, you know, you can get to something really quickly, you know, particularly the more experience you have. You know? And then, yeah. but, but then, you know, particularly in agencies, this is the difficulty where you know, sometimes there's a sense that clients want to pay for incompetence, you know, because, because if getting you, their if, money's worth. Yeah, because <laughs> they, they, they want to see 100 hours of work. Uh, yeah, you know, the solution, whereas actually, you know, it, it was solved in an hour. And then, and then you've got to, you know, you've got to kind of make it up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's where val- that's where value based pricing comes in. And yeah. I mean, I've never been in agency land, but I look at the way that the agency model works and the relationship with the client and, you know, again, hope I'm not offending anybody, but it just yeah. seems really broken. It d- yeah. doesn't make any sense to me as an outsider. <laughs> like, yeah. 
Well, it's just on that head hours model is kind of, it's just really flawed, you know? But, yeah, um, it is. It doesn't encourage somebody to work, um, you know, whenever, whenever, whenever I can, I, you know, if it's possible, I'll, I'll, you know, agree a project fee with a client yeah. and then, then they'd not expect, you know, basically then what they expect is an outcome. And, you know, sometimes I can get there quite quickly. Sometimes mm -hmm. it backfires and it takes twice as long as... Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I think it probably averages out, you know, over time. Yeah, it all comes out in the wash usually, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah. Okay, number three of our seven habits is referencing up. Yes. So um, I felt imposter syndrome needed a rebrand because it's something that all copywriters and I'm sure all creative people suffer from because when what you do has any, even a, a slight attachment to whether or not you're talented at it, it's... I've heard really experienced writers sit down to write and they'll say, I sit down and I go, oh my God, I've forgotten how to write. Like, it's just, it's something we all go through. No one's ever a hundred percent sure of themselves. And, um, but at the same time, like it's this real double-edged sword. So I'm a massive raging perfectionist and that, that helps me and it hurts me in life and in my career, because on one hand, like it drives me to do better. I don't reference down, I reference up and I'll, you know, I'll never measure up to the best person who's out there doing it. Mm. But if I can control my imposter monster enough to kind of go, well, sure, but at least I'm trying to be better, I'm constantly improving and that can mm. only be good for me and for my clients. Um, but on the flip side, you know, it stops you being an asshole. Like, yeah. you know, you're not going to be that person that, like goes oh yeah i can i can 100 even though i've never done it before and charge like full price for it like you're not mm. going to do that if you've got a healthy amount of doubt so it kind of can work for you it doesn't have mm. to be this big problem mm. well, the other thing i've noticed just as a little cultural kind of observation you know over the last 10 15 years it's kind of turned into the age of the critic rather than the creator you know and where Whereas the, the critics of cultural work that seem to have more importance than the people making it. You know, you look at things like TV talent shows and everything, even like the Bake Off or, you know, <laughs> or whatever. It's like the actual creators, I know it's, they're not even given surnames, you know? It's like, and here to yeah, say right. is Johnny and here's, you know, Sally. So they don't even get a surname. And then, and then they do the little piece, you know, they make a cake or they sing their song and then it's all, all these kind of people who don't actually make anything that are, that are critiquing it. And it's like, when, when did that, when did that flip? When did it suddenly become more yeah. important? I guess reality TV does have some yeah. responsibility in that because it's way more entertaining to watch someone take someone down than it is yeah. to watch them yeah. succeed in, in one sense. It's a bit perverse of us, but yeah. you see it on Twitter all the time. Like there'll be, one of these well, that, rebrands I mean, or something yeah. that's, what, that's what I'm leading up to is like the fiercest critics on on LinkedIn or on Twitter are the people who don't make anything you know it's like oh, yeah go, go and write your own book or make your own film well yeah right <laughs> what have you ever done exactly. <laughs> I get that yeah. <laughs> okay. um point number four which is um so I can sort of relate to this because I just I'm, I'm always consuming stuff uh, mm -hmm. to uh, to stuff my mind you know i guess the more 
the more you put in, the more connections you make, and the more likely it is that something interesting is going to come out. So mind stuffing, that's your... Yeah. Um, I, I do think that's probably after curiosity, and it's heavily related. I mean, you have to be curious to mm. seek out stuffing your mind with, with all this stuff. But And again, like it's creativity is about making those new connections, but you've got to have um, data points to connect. So... Yeah. And you never know what that's going to be, right? Like it could yeah. be something from quantum physics that you join up with music or something like that. So you've got to be really going for a really wide net of just stuff that interests yeah. you. I read a book last year by a guy called Brian Green, who's a, a theoretical physicist. The book's called The End of Time. So it's all about, it's all about physics and you know, I never did any of that at school. I was useless at science. And yeah, same. So, same. But I just, I, I devoured that book. I think I read it through about twice and then I got the audio book as well so that he could read it to me, you know, and it was, uh, yeah. you know, uh, and there's some really big ideas in there. Uh, you know, uh, yeah. Uh, about uh, the entropic two-step, which uh, I'm, I'm... Oh, I'll have to read that. <laughs> I can't really explain it. It's too hard, but it's kind of... Um, you know, that was one that I thought, actually, that's a little key. That's a little link. That's something I've been trying to write about or trying to say. And that's the uh -huh. idea. That's the idea that can make it. You know, I'm not writing about physics. You know, I'm just writing about some crap. No, but it's just that different angle, that different yeah. the ability to look at it from that way. Yeah. It shouldn't just be the key that unlocks mm. the whole thing for you. Um, and, I mean, that's the thing about, like, like words. Um, I think Glenn Fisher says in his hilarious intro song to his podcast, like, writing copywriting is not about writing it's about the song goes it's about ideas and yeah. um you know words are currency for those ideas um so to call a copywriter like a wordsmith or something it's kind of it's not insulting but it's sort of reductionist because it's not about making the words pretty it's about having the right set of ideas yeah. expressed in the right way that nurtures somebody along a path towards making a particular decision so there's the, so much the, more to the it words than just... are, the, are the tools for for communication so exactly it's not just arranging yeah. arranging words on a on a page no it's like saying that a composer is like a, a note basher it's yeah. like yeah, yeah no nah. <laughs> um so mind stuffing really is about you know making yourself consume a truckloads of information and then allowing your subconscious mind to kind of walk it off so in that process You've got to give yourself the space also to, to spend time being bored and to spend time just letting your brain reorganize that information, make those connections, solve those problems. Um, and that kind of makes copywriting a 24-7 job because um, between the stuffing and the walking it off and the actual writing and all that sort of stuff. And on that basis, I like to say I'm like the cheapest person hour on hour that you could possibly hire. Yeah. Your business because I really am just like noodling things over and working on on writing a project like 24 hours a day mm. okay chapter five then is delightful intrusions to uh disrupt the process maybe. yeah yeah um so I guess I see promotional copy as being like the first job it has to do is make you look um, so when I was doing my comms classes as part of my degree, I remember my professor saying, 
if you want someone to pay attention, you have to first say their name. So right. something has to call out to a person so they'll pay attention to it. Where the thing we're most interested in in this world is ourselves. Mm-hmm. And if you can therefore intrude into someone's life in a really um, specific way that, and you, and you know, I hate these phrases, but when people say things like, oh, hard relate, or I feel so seen, or, you know, stuff like that, yeah. that means you're getting that reaction yeah. that you really want. Um, you have to stop short of, I've been through their rubbish bin, but yeah. you've kind of got to find that happy balance. Yeah. But the other thing I remember, because before I was a strategist, I was a creative and I used to write a little bit. I wasn't very good. That's why I moved over, you know, but one, uh, especially in direct marketing, you know, one of the little rules we used to use was just get them to say yes to anything. Because, mm. uh, you know, and if you can get them to say yes to two things, then ask them the thing that you want them to say yes to, you know. But you've yeah, they're in that mindset of yeah. saying yes. Yeah. yeah. That would be I nice. love those little psychological ones. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've got one thing I haven't actually read yet, but it's like one of those PDFs that sits in the bowels of your laptop and it's like, um, yeah. you know, how con man, you can apply con man tactics to your copywriting yeah. as well. I yeah. completely plan to read that one day, but, you know, I would never use it for yeah. evil. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this, this thing, mind stuffing, you know, what? Uh, uh, last year I got really interested in, uh, in cold reading, you know, so I got a few, uh, yeah. uh, there's a few books, you know, you can get, I, I've, subscribe to that kindle unlimited you know so you can uh, you can use it as you know especially little small books that have been self-published you know you can you use yeah. it as a library you know i actually hate it as an author because people read my book <laughs> and i don't get any money for it but then I'm yeah. people's and i don't have to pay um, <laughs> but but uh but yeah the cold reading stuff that gives you lots of little you know little psychological kind of uh uh, tricks we're going to talk about tarot cards in a minute right which is a bit like magic yeah. and stuff you know but i guess the, <laughs> yeah. the 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 core of it is is finding uh it's being able to find people's blind spots you know because that's how that's how magic works you know i mean it isn't magic yes it's just things are done in a way that you don't notice you know because a clever magician knows yeah how to work with those. and there's a certain um compliance from the audience like we don't want to know well, that's it. Yeah, they want to be fooled, don't they? Yeah, we love being fooled. We love that sense of wonder and yeah. you know how they do that. Yeah. Don't want to be told. Like, yeah. you know. Well, that's it because you want to know how to do it so you can go and fool somebody else. You know. That's the, yeah. That's the, <laughs> anyway, we digress. We'll do do that in a minute. Let's let's finish off. Uh, let's finish off our um, our seven. So we've got the the last two. Let's combine them, right? So you talk about resilience, obviously, and we kind of touched on that more about you know just sort of you know plowing through and then the importance of mentoring so I don't know if we can join those two up in the, in yeah for sure I mean I think um the process of having mentors definitely is the thing that's single-handedly um built my resilience I mean you cannot have a fear of the red pen if you're going to be a copywriter um and I've I had bosses earlier on with those writing projects I would take on in work and and they were quite hard on me and I actually really appreciated that because you don't get better from people telling you how good you are you get better from um, people pointing out how you could have improved and I really strive to kind of still have that sting when people um, give me that feedback not because you know I'm some kind of masochist or something but because um, it means I really didn't hold anything in reserve so 
if if I did that, like it's much easier if you go, oh, I could have done better. I know I could have done better. If someone then criticizes it, it's almost like you did it on purpose. Mm. You built a buffer between you and you know <laughs> and the criticism. Um, so if it stings when people give me the feedback, I know that it's because I really did try my best and that this feedback is actually designed to help build on it and make it better. So you have to be able to put up with that if you're going to be any kind of um, creative, I think. Um, and I think mentors play an important role in that. For sure. It's kind of, I mean, the resilience thing is about not getting too attached to your yeah. ideas. Yeah. I think, you know, just be prepared to, you know, let them go or... Well, I love that phrase, you've got to be able to kill your darlings. Like, yeah. I think that's yeah. really important. Yeah. Um, but, what, yeah. but you don't, it, actually, don't actually kill them. What you do is you keep a little folder on your computer called, yes. called Killed Ideas, and you stick them yep. up there because... <laughs> because that's it. Well, you never know. Like, you might be able to shoehorn that into something Exactly, yeah. If an idea is a good idea, it's a good idea. If it doesn't get bought, that doesn't mean it's not a good idea. That means precisely. Yeah, you know, for precisely. whatever reason, someone can can buy it. Right, yeah. okay, right. Let's um, let's have a musical interlude, and then I'm dying to hear about about uh, your uh, psychic uh, experience <laughs> in, uh, in, in Mount Eliza Market. So, yep. <laughs> right. Okay, so we're gonna have. Uh, so this is uh, this is Dolly Parton, who, to be honest. I had always associated Dolly Parton with some kind of, you know, when people uh, invoke Dolly Parton, I thought it was some kind of ironic kind of guilty pleasure, like, isn't this so bad that it's good kind of thing. Uh, and, sure. then I, and then I watched the documentary uh, uh-huh. a few years ago or a couple of years ago. I, don't, I think it was, on, it was on Netflix or one of these things. And, uh, and I just, that was a reappraisal for me for her as, yeah. as an artist because I thought no it isn't you know there's a lot more depth there than the oh yeah than the surface uh level that I had, had only looked at you know but um yeah well, Dolly's definitely a bit of a punchline um for most people and, and she knows that and she kind of plays up to it and then mm. kind of slaps you with it and then turns it all around but I've been um listening to the Dolly Parton's America podcast and I cannot recommend that enough it's about Dolly Parton but it's kind of looking at like everything through the lens of Dolly Parton and I mean her music honest to goodness is like a primary source of history and like the feminist experience from when she said well not feminist so much as feminine experience from when she was kind of born through till now because she actually starts off um, flipping the Appalachian murder ballad on its head so that it stops being just a story about a woman who's been murdered and it starts telling the stories of the women from their point of view. So she kind of starts there and then progresses through to this almost like a self-help kind of approach to her more modern music. But throughout that period, she sort of went through that angry, angry at men thing and all that sort of stuff. So it really does track, like it takes the temperature of um the female experience over the time she's had such a long career that you know it's actually really interesting to observe um so yeah that podcast is amazing dolly parton's america listen to it if you don't i don't know what to tell you like you just absolutely have to do it um so she's a brilliant human being and i i adore her songwriting um 
she's a philosopher really i mean she says so many great things if you want like a branding strategy her line you know figure out who you are and do it on purpose like that's yeah. just you know that's exactly yeah. what you got to do yeah. um and this song i will always love you i mean most people don't even know she wrote it they, they right. think of the whitney houston um version and absolutely that's where i started with it and i always love this song um but i love dolly's version because it's not the way she sings and tells stories it's not about her it's about the actual song yeah. and whitney i mean the ego on that woman was extraordinary she she was a phenomenal singer like mm. from a vocalist point of view and, and an extraordinary person all the rest of it but the woman had an ego like and it came out it's all about the, like, watch me hit this high note watch me do this run and it kind of distracts i find that kind of singing distracts from yeah. the lyrics which is what i'm always about and i love that dolly actually this is a resignation letter this song so yeah. she wrote it for Porter Wagner um, because she knew she had to leave his show. And he sort of listened to it and apparently said something like, fine, go, but you have to let me produce that song. Yeah. And so he sort of did and all the rest of it. But she wrote that song on the same day, Legend Has It, as Jolene, which was the other song I struggled. Like I was like, do I pick Jolene or do I yeah. pick always, I Will Always Love You? And like you... I was talking to someone earlier and we were talking about songs that just kind of come to people like downloads, like they were just written really quickly. And there's a lot of songs like that, like Nights in White Satin by the Moody Blues and um, Wicked Game by Chris Isaac and Losing My Religion by R.E.M. Like these are all really big songs that apparently just arrived in their entirety yeah. into the psyche of the person um, writing them. And to me that says a lot about intuition. Like we don't allow people to use intuition as data anymore. Yeah. But what is intuition except the sum of all of your understanding? Like, why are we not allowing ourselves to, you know, that's how someone writes a song in a minute. Like, it's, yeah. well, I think, you know, some, sort of sometimes, you know, there's certain songs and they just really connect in a sort of quite visceral kind of, mm. you know, and it's a bit like, um, I mean, you know, not to over theorize this, but um, I always used to get annoyed in agencies in, in the format of creative briefs, right? And uh, and so the planner would write uh, in a box, you know, this is what we want the consumer to think, feel, and do. And I'd say, mm. well, well those, that's completely the wrong way around, right? Because what you want them to do is feel something first, then mm. take some sort of action, and then you know, what they think is the story they tell themselves after they've done what they uh, what they did. That's how it works, you know. Um, because yeah, well, I've, I've been reading a lot about how people make decisions and, mm. and about how 95% of um, cognition happens in the subconscious mind yeah. and that emotions are the messengers between yeah. the subconscious mind and the conscious mind. Like, it doesn't make sense not to... Yeah. Well, basically, that, emotions tell that, you know, what we think of as consciousness or the you know, the sort of uh, decision-making modules that tell them what to do. It's like, this yep. is, you know, this is the situation, this is the appropriate behaviour, This is, and here's, you know, how to explain it to yourself, you know? Well, it's yeah. right there in the word, isn't it? Motion, yeah. e-motion, yeah. anyway. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but the, but with, with, you know, particularly with that, the Dolly Parton, you know, because I was like you, I didn't really, I, I think I'd heard that she wrote it, but I hadn't heard it until just a few years ago. But mm. the the difference between her original song is it's almost like the limitations of her voice 
mm. actually you know make the, the the sort of emotional sort of response uh better there's a kind of vulnerability because because um mm. whereas the whitney houston one is just so so technically virtuoso yeah. the the kind of feeling is kind of lost because you're too busy gawping at the spectacle of of her uh yes vocal gymnastics you know yes um, and it's like that line about the advertising like if you're marveling at how great the ad is then you know it's not a great ad is yeah. it because you're not paying attention to the product it's kind yeah. of the same thing yeah. yeah it's a bit like bob dylan you know he wouldn't wouldn't last five minutes on one of these tv talent shows you know the sort of god no Crooking. The man couldn't really see, like you know, he, he gets along well enough. It's sort of the same with Leonard Cohen. Like, yeah. you're like you can sing good enough, but like I'd rather listen to someone else sing. So, yeah. or, or or Lou Reed, you know, must have a whole career yeah. without even singing, just talk. You know? Yeah, but such great ideas, like yeah. amazing. Yeah. Ideas. yeah. Okay. All right. Play Dolly Parton, then we'll get into. Um, I think it'll be our final subject. Will be uh, tarot. If I should stay, I would only be in your way. So I'll go, but I Okay, so so tell us about your encounter. Well, so work work backwards on tarot cards, so you can because I'm dying to hear the story, and then you can <laughs> give us the rest of the the things. So, um, so, you, so you had an encounter with a with a mentalist. Never, I did. It was never has very a, never has creepy. a job been more appropriately named. You know? right yeah. and there's not that like there's actually similarities between what this person was doing and what I do in mm. the sense that you know you're trying to get into the heads of people and and all that sort of business but so part of my running at the scary thing was I would say yes to any like obviously did not tell anybody about this because you could easily exploit it but I had to say yes to every opportunity that came my way and you know Man Eliza often has um 
has this psychic fair that comes along and someone asked me to go and then bailed, but I had to keep, I had to go because I said I was going to go. And, you know, I've got this interest in tarot cards and whatnot anyway. So I thought, yeah, I'll go along. And I put on my best, um, you know, cheesecloth dress and you know, tried mm. to look the parts I could kind of blend in. And mm. anyway, I went into this mentalist um, session and this woman was just like a complete charlatan. Like, um, so she, like one of the things she said to each of us was, um, oh, well, you're a very spiritual person. And I was like, oh, holy shit, like we're at a psychic fair, like do. Um, but so she, I, I was willing her with everything I had. I really wanted her to pick me because she only picked like six people. So I was, I, mm. I don't know how I did that. I made a lot of eye contact or whatever. Yeah. And she said all these things about me, which were just such horse poo. Um, <laughs> so like I, I, I burst into tears because I'm a really empathic person. I burst into tears with the, when the person behind me had had their reading. She goes, oh, you're a very sensitive person and all this sort of junk. And I was like, oh, my God, this is so disappointing. But then the woman next to me who had been, she kept staring at me through the whole thing. And I was like, just get, like I'm picking up my handbag and kind of like clinging onto it because I'm like, is she going to rob me or something? But And she turned to me and she said, like, do you, is your father's name David? And I'm like, well, I know I'm holding onto my bag. So she hasn't been through my purse or anything like that. I was like, yes, yes, my dad's name's David. And, and then she started saying things like, oh, well, his, his mother's here and she's sending all these messages. And, like, I don't know how she did it, but mm. she got to the point where, like, she said, you're one of three daughters, your mother passed when you were young. And she just some, and she, and, like, apparently my mother was there singing songs um, and changing the words as a by way of talking to us, which was absolutely something she could have done. So she was changing my girl to my girls and, you know, all mm. that sort of thing. And. It was just like, you know, hair standing up on the back of your neck territory. And like I, I'm more open to this stuff than the average hunter because mm. of my whole tarot card thing. But like it was really hard to really to turn on my scientific brain to go like, how is she doing this? Because it was such an emotional experience. Mm. And I don't know how she did it. Like, I mean, I, I guess on one level I go, well, maybe she really is psychic, but um, you know, as opposed to this first person who, like, I mean, that in itself was fascinating. So the whole the whole event was organised around this one person, that mentalist that I started off with. Yeah. And she was like a guru. Like everyone, there was all this hushed whispering, like, oh, this person in the room. And, yeah. You know, I mean, there's this hierarchy to these events that was fascinating to yeah. observe. But then this woman who was nobody, like she was just another audience member. Yeah to then turn to me and tell me all these things I like she knew about me. And I'm like, talk about having a have they been through my rubbish bin moment. Like yeah. I was I just don't know how she did it. Like yeah. it was just insane. Well I mean I guess you know I mean one one of the things is you don't know how many times she's tried that line, right? It's the kind of Right. You know, and, and and so it, it might have just been a pure fluke that you know, this absolutely time she happened to get it right. There's there's a little trick I sometimes do, you know, where I get people and I say, right, uh, right, let's see if this works. Uh, if it doesn't work, then we'll do it again. You can say the right answer, and then I'll edit it so that it looks like I got it right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I say to people, ask, uh, think you know, just close your eyes and then, and, and think of a, a number between between zero and nine. Okay. Yeah, so we'll do that. Think of it. Tell me the number. Is it seven? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> Was it five? 
Sorry. <laughs> oh, okay, all right, didn't work. But the, but the logic there is, right, there's a few things yeah, that go on. Yeah, I see what right? you're saying. Yeah, you, um, <laughs> when you ask people to think of a number, for some reason, unconsciously, we think that odd numbers are less frequent than even numbers, right? So, right. So between zero and nine, you've got you've basically got three, five, and seven, right? Because nobody's going gotcha. to pick zero because it's the beginning. Nobody's going to pick nine, or very rarely pick nine because it's the end. So you've got a one yeah. in three chance of getting it right. You I know? see. Yeah. Uh, and so I was I always pick seven. Seven seems to be uh, uh, apparently if you ask people their favorite number, people pick seven. Uh, so it's a, like it's a really popular number. So well, it's you, got that mental availability, doesn't it? Like a yeah, lucky number seven. <laughs> yeah. So, so when you do that, you know you've got you you've got a reasonable chance of getting it right, you know, and then freaking people out when they think you can read their minds. I do it's, love those those yeah. mentalist tricks; they're really yeah. good. Yeah. <laughs> but but that's one of the things with cold reading, you know, it's like just thinking of uh, things that are very popular, right? So you know. So you, you, if you statistically know that, you know, on average, you know, people of a certain age group or whatever, uh, you know, the most popular family sizes, uh, you know, are, are about that. So maybe you, you know, you're part of a generation where, you know, people had two or three kids, right? So you're much more likely, you know, to say, oh, you've got two sisters than to say you've got yeah. seven brothers, you know, which is highly, right. yeah. highly unlikely. So you know, all the time you're just using those kind of general facts that you know, because, uh, and this comes back to, I mean, you're going to talk about Barnum uh, in a minute. It's the exact yeah. thing of that, you know, things that seem completely personal uh, are, because guess what, you know, you're pretty much the same as everybody else, you know, <laughs> all our well, that's it, uh, right? hopes, hopes and fears are broadly similar, you know? Yeah. That's so true. And it was really hard for me to remain um, you know, objective in that moment because clearly she would have been, um, like, I don't know where she got her skill from. Like, yeah. has she been taught mentalist techniques or does she actually believe, like, that she's yeah. doing this for real? But she would have been picking up off my reactions to things. So if I reacted in a certain way to something she said, she knew yeah. to run with that and whatnot. Yeah. So it is fascinating, I think. They can, they can, I mean, the other thing of, of that kind of, of cold reading and stuff is, is nonverbal cues, you know, so yeah. uh, very, very skilled in watching, you know, what direction the eyes yeah. go and all that kind of stuff, because all those things, you know, anyway, but just, uh, just to, so what, what is, what's your interest, what is your specific interest in, in, in tarot cards then? So I had a very strange grandmother, she was heavily like she was always searching for something in her life and um you know she so she taught me she gave me my first deck of tarot cards and I, I don't think I was even um 10 yet okay. and uh so so she would teach me to read them but it, to me tarot is part game part meditation and all theater like it's yeah. there's there, like you say that like, there's that whole thing about magic like people People, even the most cynical people, if I do a reading for them, they want to believe it because people love learning things about themselves and they yeah. feel like there's going to be some kind of answer for them about who they are or what's going to happen to them. Or yeah. So even if they don't believe it, and, you know, I only half believe it. Like I I, I believe it and I don't believe it. I, I usually believe the good things and I decide that I don't believe in the bad yeah. stuff. Yeah. Um, theatrical kind of way of telling people what they already know um, yeah exactly and it's like those ink block things um yeah. that 
it's like like you can see whatever you want to see like that's mm-hmm. that and that Barnum effect like the meanings of the tarot cards are so broad yeah. that you could pretty much make it fit almost almost yeah. anything <laughs> Well, well, that's it. Like sort of the kind of death. You think, oh, it's like, well, no, no, no. But what it means is that they might, you know, they might be it's going rebirth through rebirth. And... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, the end of a cycle, or something yeah. like that. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, that's what I love about them is that they've got, um, in a way, they've got like three layers of meaning. So there's like the denotative meaning, the connotative meaning, and then there's almost like a layer of modern meaning. So, for example, if you take the card which is called the Page of Swords. That is literally a boy holding a sword on the card. And then the connotative meanings of that is, well, he's a page. So he was kind of sent out with a job to do, probably take a message to someone. Um, The swords are associated with air signs, and that's like Libra, Gemini, and Aquarius. Um, Swords in tarot generally um, represent thoughts and communication. So there's that to take into account. Um, but then if you then add that like modern meaning to that, that card generally means someone stalking your social media. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's, it's kind of cute. <laughs> like... yeah. As, aside from the from the mysticism, but I mean, you know, I think is it do you think that maybe, you know, doing that helps to hone your storytelling kind of Oh yeah, skills. yeah. Because you have to make a story out of what, however the cards fall, yeah. um, and the tarot themselves do tell the story of cycles. So, for example, you start off with the fool, and he's about to step off a cliff and um, take a leap of faith, and you work all your way through this cast of characters to like the world card, which to me is like the the end of a video game. You're going up a level. It's like do 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 do, like you mm. know start mm. next level and because those things are so general i mean people are always going to be on a journey somewhere. you can kind of you've got to you've got to use the cards in such a way that they talk to each other and then you've got to take whatever you know about the person and go well th- this could mean that like does that make sense to you and you know they'll yeah. say yes or you generally they say yes because they want it to be true yeah. But yeah, definitely. There's there's a huge storytelling element to tarot. That's basically what the whole thing's about. So I do think it helps for sure. Cool. Okay. Right. Give us your uh, give us your final. Okay. This one's by Sean Rowe, and it's called "To Leave Something Behind." And I only know this song because my husband made me watch this Ben Affleck movie called The Accountant, which I really didn't want to see. But um, it actually turned out to be quite good. And then when the credits started rolling, this song came on and I was like, oh, what's the song? And, and it was honestly worth sitting through that film just to get this song out of it because right. it, it's, it's got this epic sound to it. It's like a Dylan song, that right. kind of quite revolution who is i don't know who sean roe is to be honest neither do i i only really know um i haven't i haven't delved into my weird little obsession thing with singer songwriters with him yet but i do Mm. know a little bit in the sense that like he has to crowdfund his music and to be fair to him so he's a a sort of contemporary uh yeah 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 definitely and and like to be fair he's not playing the game when it comes to the industry like he has a difficult voice and a difficult look. Like he, he has a big Ned Kelly beard. He gives like zero fuck bucks about what he looks like. Like it's just, 
he's just not about that at all. He really is a proper artist. He's a poet, you know, like it's mm. it's about the music. Um, and my, it's quite funny because my dad's always baiting me and saying like, where is your generation's poets? And I'm always saying, well, they're not, they're not at the top of the pops, dad. Like, you know, mm. like we just... Um, and that's interesting in itself because, like, he has this real sense of ownership over the the, the pop culture of his time, mm. and there's this real pride in it, like, and in the nostalgia too. And there was some real shite from around then. Like, I mean, in 1962, the Beatles burst onto the scene with "Love Me Do," yeah. but then so did Little Red Rented Rowboat. Like, you yeah. know, you can, yeah. you can edit that any way you like. But yeah. um, so. Yeah, so Sean has to um, crowdfund his albums and, like, his guitar that he plays, he has to tape it up with duct tape because, like, he hits his guitar, like, so hard when he strums it that he actually cracks mm. it from time okay. to time. And that duct tape pattern, you can buy T-shirts, like, his merch has that pattern, <laughs> pattern oh. on it. It's become, like, a brand asset, <laughs> which a I find... A distinctive asset. Yeah. Yes, yeah. I find that delightful. Yeah. <laughs> No, it's, it, it's, it's, it's funny, I think, you know, just to sort of, uh, not to sort of uh, go on your dad's side, you know, but I think um, there's a, the, the difficulty with, uh, I mean, there's two things with music today. I think it's so, because it's so fragmented, the discovery of music, you don't have those big sort of shared no. cultural moments, you know, even just radio, you know, where, where, you, where you would know you were hearing the same songs as everyone yeah. else and things would get popular so that doesn't happen now it's much more fragmented. that's it yeah. i mean i was in the car the other day with my daughter and she, she's 10 my oldest and for once in now you know very rare occasion we had the radio on mm. and we pulled up at the lights and the woman in the car next to us yeah you know, i flicked my head over and i noticed she was actually singing along to the same song we had on and i, I laughed because you know that never happens anymore and and she, she my daughter was like what's you know, what are you laughing at? I was like, oh, she's singing the same song. Yeah, she's like, does she have the same Spotify? You know, mm. I was like, no. <laughs> like, you know, we used to have this damn fangled thing called the radio. Yeah. Like, everyone be listening at the same time. Yeah. Just trying to explain that to someone that age. Like, they have no concept yeah. of this mass consumption of anything. I mean, they want to watch something. They just click a button. It's just yeah. a completely different experience. Like, I can't really relate to it. Because there's the odd, the odd exception that kind of breaks out. I mean, the one uh, last year, or maybe it was the year before, but it, it's funny because, you know, when Spotify pings you and they say, oh, here's your most listened to uh, songs of the year, you know, so we've just got one Spotify account that everyone in the house uses. And it came yeah. up, here's your favourite song of 2019, and it was Old Town Road. And it's like, well, <laughs> that's exactly my least favourite song. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> Because my son was playing it all the time. I tried to yeah. educate him, you know. So, but uh, but there's that sort of flattening of time, you know, that happens in post modernity. You know, he's it's kind of. Yeah. I, I I looked at one of his playlists the other day, and it goes from he's got like uh, like seventies kind of heavy metal in there, and then and then there was Vera Lynn, you know, We'll Meet Again. Wow. Apparently, it's in. Yeah. It's in. Uh, Call of Duty soundtrack or something like that. So it's video. Oh, I see. <laughs> but it's just a song to him. It's not like it doesn't have that historical. There's context. no context to it. Yeah. yeah. So it's this, you know, it is the end of history. You know? 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that's sort of post-modernity. If you think of it, so I mean, is it, I, I decided uh, last year I decided to kick myself and I said, right, you've got to sort of drag yourself into the, the 21st century of music and listen to new stuff, you know, not just all the yeah. thing. And so I found, I started to find a few little bands that I liked, Sleaford Mods, and uh, that my wife introduced me to, and then things connected to that sort of punky kind of things, but of now. And I thought, Oh, I was like proud of myself. Well, look at all this new music I like. But I said, it's not, it's not new. It's kind of pastiche of the music yeah. of, of 1979. But I liked That's anyway. You know? <laughs> so, yeah. So why bother? <laughs> but, you know, just... There's nothing new under the sun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it seems to be, there seems to be nowadays there is, there's even less new. You yeah. know. No, you're not wrong. Yeah, yeah I agree. And, and it's no longer a project to be new. You know, it's no yeah there's a strange um a bunch of years ago like looking at my 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 brother and sister-in-law is sort of a chunk of change like younger than than my husband and I are and they just seem to use music in this completely different way like there's a sort of a nostalgia for a time that they really had no understanding of um yeah. they they picked and chose from things like the 80s and the 90s in terms of fashion and sound and all that sort of stuff. And they kind of edit it to suit their new, mm. you know, con conceptualization of that. But also there was this way of like, they only really wanted to listen to things no one was listening to because that was the point. The point was to be the person that discovered it and to take ownership of it in that way. And the second anyone else was listening to it, it wasn't cool anymore. Mm. And it was just, it was really interesting to watch that. Cause I really grew up through a period of time where I mean, maybe I was just deeply uncool, but people around me were quite happy to listen to pop music. And then, yeah. yeah, there's something to a really well-crafted pop yeah. song. Like some things are popular because they're good. Like, you yeah. know. Exactly. Yeah. If you think back, you know, I was, um, you know, to, to like the 60s or something, I was, I was watching something, I think it was because Mary Wilson, was it Mary Wilson of the Supremes had died just recently, a couple of weeks ago? So there was a mm. kind of, you know, uh, there was a sort of retro, you know, they were looking back on it. And you, and you look at like the Supremes and stuff from 1964, and that's that's pop. I mean, that was as pop as you could get, right? But it yeah. was so sophisticated uh, uh, pop, you know. It was kind of, uh, it's yeah. just, it's hard to hard to fathom now that 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 was pop music, you know, and it was it right. Was, you know, it was sophisticated. It was smart. It was, uh, uh, you know, they yeah. looked, they looked fantastic. There was no, there was no nod and a wink. There was no irony. You know, it was, mm. it was uh, straight up. Anyway, it's like old films, really. Like, yeah. um, even if you go back as far as the forties and watch a few of the films from that time that were like the big movies, yeah. like they'd be art house films now. Yeah, just like the level of. The language they use like like yeah. really they didn't talk down to their audiences like it was really quite sophisticated emotional yeah. landscapes yeah. and that sort of stuff yeah. yeah it's interesting okay right well before we before we go before we sort of inevitably land in everything in in sort of oh, 2021 is rubbish let's, yeah <laughs> let's not uh, uh let's not you know. I cannot say, but I know you will 
But you can't lie to me with all these books at yourself I'm not trying to follow you to the end of the world I'm just trying to leave something behind Words have come from many mouths oh, But I can't help thinking that I've heard the wrong crowd When all the water is gone, my job will be too And I'm just trying to leave something behind Oh, money is free, but love costs more than our bread In the ceiling it's hard to reach Oh, the future ahead is broken and red And I'm trying to leave something behind This whole world is a foreign land We swallow the moon, but we don't know our own hand We're running with the case, oh, but we ain't got the gold And we're trying to leave something behind Oh, my friends, I believe we are at the wrong fight And I cannot read what I did not write I've been to his house, oh, but the master is gone But I'd like to leave something behind There is a beast who's taking my brain You can put me to bed, but you can't feel my pain When the machine has taken the soul from the man It's time to leave something behind Our money is free, but love costs more than our bread In the ceiling it's hard to reach All the future ahead is already dead And I'm trying to live something so, <laughs> Okay, listen, thank you very much for uh, lending us your time and wisdom um, oh, thank you for having me. Yeah, that's all right. Is there anything you want to just um, before we end? Do you want to uh, let the, the vast masses of uh, listeners you know, <laughs> know about, <laughs> about what you're up to, or if they want to work with you, how they can contact you or ask you things uh, or whatever? Or, or, uh, for sure. Also, uh, um, whatever contact details you, uh, you get, I would encourage listeners to join me in the campaign for uh, for the book. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> you're funny. Um, you can find me on Twitter under a handle at yes no um, which was formed for a blog I had a million years ago, but I'm still with it. Um, 
Carolyn Barclay Copywriter is my website and I'm on LinkedIn, obviously, under Carolyn Barclay. Um, I'm not really anywhere else online. I'm looking, I'm probably looking to work with clients who are more interested in starting right back at the beginning of the process. I'm kind of, I'm hoping that I'm kind of done doing websites where I'm just colouring them in with words from now on. So if anyone out there is looking to uh, start the process from the beginning, preferably in the B2B space, hit me up. <laughs> um, yeah, I'd be, I'd be happy to, to talk to people who are interested in bringing the big idea back to um, digital for sure. Okay, brilliant. So I'll, I'll um, in the description of the show when it goes up, I'll put in a link to your website. And so, uh, Thank you. Very kind. <laughs> okay, well, I shall let you get on with your day. And then thanks again.